welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Coach Connor, here with my ever-present co-host, Chris Case, who's actually not here because he's off climbing some of the biggest mountain passes in Italy. So I'll do my best to fill in for him this week as I introduce this episode. Mindset and cycling is an important and frequently neglected side of our training and racing. It's avoided because to many it seems unclear, inconsistent, and let's face it, it can be too new agey for the likes of us tough guys. In reality, mindset is often all that separates the best from second best and can be the difference between reaching the podium or finishing a race. When I managed Team Rio Grande, I offered to cover the cost for one of our riders for a few sessions with a top sports psychologist in Colorado. He refused and ultimately quit the team. When I told several high-level pros the story, they all asked the same thing. Can I get those appointments? The best understand, mindset wins races, and controlling your thought patterns in races is one of the most powerful things you can do. So today, we'll delve into this concept of controlling your thoughts for performance. We'll touch on, first, the concept of dominant thought and why it's so important, including whether we're all funnels or buckets. Two, how athletes are either task or ego-oriented, the pros and cons of each, and why it's important to know which one you are. Third, using trigger words to control your dominant thought. Fourth, why it may not actually be good to stay mentally focused for an entire race and how to pick your moments when you are on your mental game. And five, how to control your thoughts when your body is screaming in pain and telling you to stop. Our primary guest today is a professor of sports psychology and is a senior teaching professor at Colorado State University, Dr. Brian Butkey. Dr. Bucky has worked with athletes in almost every sport, both at the university level and on professional teams in the Colorado area. In addition to Dr. Bucky, we spoke with Dean Golich, a head coach at Carmichael Training Systems. Over decades as a top coach, Dean has worked with athletes all the way from recreational amateur riders to Olympians and world champions. He is uniquely qualified to talk about the mindset of top athletes. You may be very surprised to hear what he has to say. Sepp Kuss, a world tour rider with Lotto Enel Yumbo and a winner of the 2018 Tour of Utah, talks with us briefly about his mindset and the danger of being too focused on the win. Finally, local top coach Colby Pierce gives us a variety of tips in controlling your mindset both in training and racing situations. In our next episode, we'll talk with Colby and Chris about the hour record and their experience with it. But in the meantime, Colby is going for the Masters World Record from September 22nd to 25th. We're still waiting to hear if they're going to live stream it. If they do, we'll put a link up on the Vela News page for this podcast along with our references. So let's get to the task at hand. Find your balance, focus your mind, but don't get too focused. You need your brakes and let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Normatech. The more you train, the better your recovery needs to be. Normatech's patented compression technology delivers the most advanced recovery for your body. You've seen pros like Tom Skunch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC racing team using the Normatech boots and recovery stations set up for riders at races like the Colorado Classic. Normatech's recovery massage increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. Save $100 with code FASTTALK18 at normatechrecovery.com. 
That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K-1-8 at normatechrecovery.com. Let's get back to the show. Trevor, I know you really want to tell us about this pink elephant, so why don't you jump right in and tell us? Tell okay. us about this guy. So I'm going to give all of you, our listeners, a game. Please follow along with this. It's kind of fun. So I want you to start by just closing your eyes. Hopefully you're not riding a bike while listening to this podcast. Yes. If you are driving or riding a bike, please don't <laughs> close your eyes. Otherwise, yes, follow the, follow the directions here. So close your eyes. And now I'm going to ask you to do something. And I want you to focus really hard on making sure you do what I ask you to do. What I want you to do is not picture a pink elephant. I want you to not picture a pink elephant walking down the road. I want you to not picture the absurdity of a giant pink elephant in the middle of the street. I want you to not picture its big pink trunk, its pink ears. What I want you to do is not picture a pink elephant. Okay, now open your eyes, and normally this is where I ask my athletes, did you picture a pink elephant? And the fact is, anybody who says they didn't was lying to me. <laughs> I did. Many, many pink elephants everywhere. So this brings up a, a concept, and, and Dr. Bucky, who knows far more about this, is going to uh, certainly take my, my little game and show me how little I know. But what I'm trying to explain with this little story is this concept of dominant thought that we can really truly only focus on one thing at a time and you tend to go in the direction of that thought. So it's a good old concept of if you're driving a car and you look left, you're eventually going to steer left. So the same thing, if you tell yourself not to do something when you are racing, you are inevitably probably going to end up doing that thing. So what you are focusing on, that's likely what's going to happen. And that can be important in racing because if you're sitting there at the back of the field saying, don't get dropped, don't get dropped. That's your thought, and that might be what happens. But Dr. Bucky, um, like I said, you know far more about this than I do. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, when I work with my athletes, one of the first things we talk about is attention and what you're capable of as, as, as an attender. And we usually use two different analogies. Most people think they're either a bucket or a funnel. And, and the way we look at that for, from a cyclist is if you're, if you're a bucket – that means you can put several different things in your bucket that, that you're capable of attending to. Like maybe you can ride your bike and focus on the road and listen to whatever's going on in your ear and sort of follow along with what your teammates and maybe even think about what you're going to have for dinner later. And all of those things can simultaneously be in your brain. So we call that multitasking. The fact is that that's impossible. Neurologists tell us that, that there really is no such thing as a bucket. We're all funnels. And the way to think about what a funnel is, if you think about a, a funnel has a, has a big opening at the top and then a, a small opening at the bottom. And what that would mean is we have, at all times, many different stimuli coming in. Some of them are internal, many of them are external, but in fact, we're only able to focus on one thing at a time. So in your pink elephant story you just said, no matter what we were thinking about when you told us to not think about a pink elephant, that pink elephant took over our funnel. It is the one thing and the only thing that was getting through our attention span at that point. Everything else was, was, was secondary. And in real life, what that means is usually people who are, who are good at multitasking 
are really good at switching back and forth what they allow into their funnel, and then they just fill in the gaps of what they missed in between. So when, when you give us something dominant like the pink elephant or when a rider is riding and they're thinking, oh, I should give up, I should drop now, that becomes all-encompassing in their funnel and, and nothing else gets in there. So that they don't allow themselves to think anything positive. They don't allow themselves to think any strategy. That just becomes a dominant thought and it, it hogs our funnel. So what, what that means is, and what I think the rest of this conversation is, is going to be about is, how do we control what controls our funnel? Exactly. And I am going to say that they haven't done the study yet, but I am fully convinced you focus on that pink elephant, you're going to win a lot of races. <laughs> Depending on how much strategy is needed in that race, I think you're exactly right. It is never wrong to focus on a pink elephant. Yeah, I'm telling you right now. There's the trick. That has been my cycling career, which is probably why I get yelled at a lot in races. <laughs> Trevor, exactly. stop thinking about the pink elephant. <laughs> so, yeah. So this brings me to... One of the most, most enjoyable classes I took at CSU was your sports psychology class. And, and uh, should let well, the listeners you. know that for I, I haven't been at CSU for a while, but the entire time I was there, you were winning professor of the year with, with your classes. And, and rightfully so. They were, they were quite enjoyable. Thank you. No, I, I miss them. So I actually remember that class where you talked about the, the bucket versus the funnel. And the same class, you talked about the, these goal orientations. We're talking about task uh, goals, task-oriented goals versus ego-oriented goals. So tasks being, you know, focusing on trying to do your best climb or, or trying to do your, uh, you know, trying to keep the right cadence, trying to hit the right power, where ego orientation is much more competitive. It's how do I compare against other people? How am I, exactly. uh, how am I finishing? And it seems like those can have a big impact on uh, where your thoughts go. Is that correct? Absolutely. So before we get started, we got to give a little shout out to a woman named Joan Duda. Dr. Duda is, she was at Purdue at the time, and this is kind of her, her theory that's really taken much more legs, and it's kind of a, a huge area of research in sports psychology. And, and it, it's called a goal orientation, and, and you hit it right on the nose when you, when you sort of define this. Uh, some of us are task-oriented, and I'll go ahead and say some other people are task-oriented because that's certainly not me. But a task-oriented individual measures success by self-competition by bettering themselves. It's, it's, it's also known as a mastery goal orientation where at the end of the day, you deem that day a success if you did well based on your standards for yourself. So if you wanted to have a better sprint start, if you wanted to get a paper finished, if you wanted to finish a podcast, if you did what you meant to do and you, and you feel good about yourself because of yourself, then you're task-oriented. Ego-oriented folks, on the other hand, are are much more other oriented. One of those, the people that really, they don't like to exercise on their own because they don't have somebody to compare themselves with. Mm, right. So as long as they're racing, they're motivated. And, and it's one of those things where even if you PR, if you lose, you deem that day unsuccessful. And when the theory started, the Dr. Duda had those, those concepts as, she used the term orthogonal, which means they're, 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 they're unrelated. They're, they're opposite, I guess, is a better way to put that. You are either at one end of the scale ego-oriented or at the other end of the scale task-oriented, or you're maybe somewhere in the middle. But it turns out that that's probably not the case. We, we think there are people out there who are, who are, who are both. So you, you are independently task-oriented, high or low, 
and ego-oriented higher-low. So somebody like like yourself, for example, Trevor, could be very competition-oriented, so you score high on the ego scale, but also very self-comparison-oriented, so you also score high on the task scale. And you are, if that description fits you, you're a dream athlete because you're very easy to motivate because you compare yourself to everybody and you find motivation therein. On the other hand, there are people who are low on both. Those people, to be quite honest, probably aren't athletes because they don't like competition. They don't like to better themselves. And they're, they're probably the people who are a little bit more, I want to say sedentary, but not as, not as assertive in, in going for things. So we look for, we look for people who are both. And to get back to your attention idea that, that this podcast is about, what your, your dominant motivation, whether it's task or ego, kind of drives what's in your head. You, you constantly want to get a PR, you want to better yourself, or you want to beat that guy. And you just, you just, you just want to be, be higher up on the podium. So one thing that I found interesting, I read last night this study, and I'm not even going to try, or maybe I'll try to pronounce his name. It's Antonis Hatzig-Georgiadias. It's a study from <laughs> 2002 in the psychology of sports and exercise. I will definitely put the reference up because I'm sure I wasn't even close to getting that name right. And he did a a bit of a review of this task versus uh, ego-oriented goals. But what he was getting at is thoughts of withdrawal. So when you're in an event, uh, you're hurting or you're you're not doing as well as you'd like, um, whether those thoughts of, of... pulling out of the race, start dominating your, your mind. And he found an interesting correlation with the, the people in his study that people who are very ego-oriented are therefore very internally self-focused. And when they start performing badly or they're, they're essentially in a failure situation where they're not accomplishing their, their goal or it looks like they might, might not be accomplishing their goal, and he said, if you are ego-oriented and you start really becoming self-conscious, you tend towards those withdrawal thoughts. You go, I'm not accomplishing this goal. This race sucks. I'm out of here. Where people who are very task-oriented are much more likely to say, I'm not accomplishing the goal. So how do I problem solve this? What do I do with my cadence? What do I do being more efficient on the bike? How do I position better? What are things that I can do so I can get back to accomplishing the goal? At least that was the conclusion of that study. It, it, it makes sense because if those folks who are ego-oriented, if you're, if you're quite a bit back in a race or if you've dropped out of the pack, you realize that competitively you're done. You're not going to be successful no matter what. And you can't really set intermediate competition goals or short-term or in-race competition goals because at the end, it really matters whether you're on the podium or not. But if you're task-oriented, you you, you can reset goals because it's all about you and, and your thoughts about yourself. So you can say, I want to, you know, I want to get this split up this hill or, or my next lap, I want to, you know, make up a little bit of time or or something that, that that's totally inside you that where, where your number doesn't matter. So I think I think what you're talking about there is more short-term goals within race goals or within race motivators, I guess is a better way to put that. That as long as there's something you can focus on that still matters, like you were talking about a, a refocus idea, then then you're going to be much stronger or you're going you're to be much more motivated and much less likely to, to drop out. But getting back to the, the funnel idea, really what we're trying to do is something, we refer to it as thought replacement. That instead of letting your funnel be dominated by the fact that you're losing, the fact that you can't win, the fact that you want to drop out, 
you, you instead put something in there. Well, how can I still get a success out of this? And, and you, you, you become success oriented or you, at least you try to become success oriented. It's not easy. No. Before we started this, before we started this podcast, we, we were chatting a little bit about my nephew and my nephew is a gifted rider. He's doing very, very well, but he has a little bit of a problem in that when he falls behind, if he gets dropped in a crit or actually he's quite a, quite a good crit rider. He's, he's more of a, he, he falls back a little bit on a road race. If, if he knows he's out of it or if he thinks he's out of it, he'll find a way to drop out that I guess makes him makes him not look so bad. Like he'll he'll overemphasize a mechanical or he'll focus on the fact that he's got a he's got a really bad cramp in his leg or he'll find a reason to drop out. So and I don't think because he competitively he's out of it. So that's showing his his ego orientation, which is usually good for a competitive athlete. But it also, like 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 your research said, it makes you more prone to drop out. Well, that's the self-consciousness side. And that study was saying Absolutely. when you have that ego orientation combined with being very self-conscious, such as worrying yeah. about what people think, then you can start really yep. going bad places. And that self-consciousness, the caring what people think, that touches on that ego orientation where you're comparing yourself to others. Yeah. It, it seems to me, too, that the, there's an element of size here we're talking about. If your nephew starts to get dropped... The size of the task that he's focused on is winning the race. And if he doesn't come up with tasks and steps to get from where he is dropped from the field to winning, that's a giant, giant size problem. But if you're getting dropped and you're task oriented and you think, okay, I can work on this, I can work on this, I can work on this, I can claw my way, way back maybe to the, to the back of the field. And then from there I can take more steps and those are bite size, uh, chunks and a through a stepwise process you can come back from that a little bit more easily that's what it seems like to me i i I think you're exactly right and i think part of this is knowing knowing who you are and knowing what your weaknesses are and if if a a coach was working with him if we were working with him we could say this is an issue that that we've noticed that maybe when you're not contending for a podium work on this because this is the worst part of your race and maybe you don't win this race but you have a successful race anyway because you did better at the end or you you stayed in it even though you were out and that's going to make you a better rider in the future and get you your ego goals later even though you're not going to get them right now so there's also an immediacy to it mm-hmm. i think the uh the, the idea of cycling you know the more that i think more that i put this task force the ego thing cycling is a really interesting sport in that when, when you're when you're competing you really want to be ego because you got to beat that guy and, but when you're training, you really need to focus on task because sometimes your training runs are solo and it's difficult to have a solo run if, if, if you're task oriented because you don't really have anybody to compare yourself with unless there's a, a clock or, or, you know, a certain time you're trying to beat. But that, that same idea works if you're, if you're trying, just trying to beat your PR. So cyclists, I think more than most sports kind of have to be both. They have to be high on task and high on ego. But I guess if I had to choose, I'd, I'd, I'd want somebody who's tasked because they're probably going to be they, – they can work harder alone. To go back to your point about Trevor and, and whether he's task-oriented or ego-oriented, and, and uh, I think he's both. And I th- No, I'm, I'm pink elephant <laughs> all the way. That, that is all I, all I focus on. <laughs> Dean Golich is a head coach at Carmichael Training Systems and has been fortunate enough to work with many Olympians and world champions. I asked him about the concept of dominant thought, but it really turned into a conversation about the ego side of motivation. Golish points out that it can be negative or positive, meaning some are motivated to win, others to not lose. 
but he may be surprised by his perspective on which is more successful. He has certainly, through his athletes, seen what may be more important than either, resilience. So I was interested as a coach who's worked with very high-level athletes, really two questions for you is one, have you seen this concept of dominant thought play out uh, with these athletes? And do you see in higher level athletes uh, a, a good ability to control their dominant thought? Yeah, so maybe maybe I'm going off the deep end right here, but I don't know that concept well. I've, I've heard it in passing, but I would say that I more look at it as a bias. I'm, I'm more about bias of what you see think you know isn't a problem it's what you or what you don't know is a problem isn't a problem it's what you think you know for sure <laughs> that's the problem and so if it's my bias of coaching I found that there's basically two types of people and and maybe they intermix all the time within themselves of that you really want to win so you win and you're so afraid to lose you win and so there's an in- insecurity a failure that drives everything, but then there's also a really dominant of competition, dominant side of competition mentality. And then I've seen people that I've dealt with a lot of high level, you know, Olympic medalists and world champions and all that kind of stuff. And I've seen them go through both scenarios constantly from month to month, year to year and, and so on. And I'll, I'll tell you, I don't have a theory of how I deal with it. And everyone asks me like, Oh, you've had a lot of success with women. What do you do different? And I'm like, I don't do anything different. It's been really the way my parents raised me, <laughs> which I wish I had a better answer, but it's like, just treat people the right way. Try to be, hold them accountable. And then you go forward because the rest of it is way too complicated to figure out. So that's what I got. <laughs> so going back you said they're, they're, they're dominated often either by a desire to win or a fear of failure. Uh, yeah. When an athlete is in one state or the other, do you handle them differently? Well, I think in my early years out of ignorance, I thought I needed to correct the insecurity part of it and that they were afraid to fail, so then they did it. Now I realize that that's part of human behavior. And I dealt with sports teams from you know the NBA and the NHL hockey, and what I found is some of the toughest guys that you think outwardly tough may be the most insecure and that they're very successful. I don't know if they're su- successful in life, but they're successful at their sport. And I think that may be the differentiation of if you have a dominant thought, does that make you successful in life or does that make you su- successful at the task you're trying to complete? Right. And so maybe, like I said, when I was younger, I tried to correct the insecurity side because I thought the bias I had was if you want to win bad enough, then that's a positive thing. But it, it becomes just as negative as the insecure part. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's the one I got. Well, it sounds, and I, I might be stretching a little bit here, but you're almost saying that if somebody's fear fears losing, that isn't necessarily going to uh, guarantee that they win or lose. It might be how they use that that fear when they're in competition or, or how they approach it that's going to determine whether they're more likely to win or, or more likely to lose. Uh, I wasn't explaining that well, but does that make sense? Yeah, and correct the other way. Just because you want to win that, that doesn't guarantee you're going to win either. So both of them get the same result. So, for example, if I make the front group because I don't want to look bad and I'm afraid to fail in front of everyone, I made the front group. If I want to make the front group in a a classic and a 
and I want to win so bad I make the front group, both those people made the front group. But as you said, on the flip side, I've seen athletes who are so overconfident they were going to win that they, they broke away 100 miles from the finish line, and there was no way they were going to hold that to the end, and it actually got their overconfidence cost in the race. So it sounds like it can go both ways. Yeah, and generally that is a learned behavior of tactics within the sport that you learn that. Like, sport and maybe life has maybe its own ability to correct those behaviors, but the underlying, or the, the, the tactics, but the underlying behavior, I don't know that it actually changes. So the guy who really wants to win and he's so confident he goes early, generally they won't do that again. Right. Because they saw that it didn't work and they want to win so bad. Same thing. If the person who is insecure and doesn't want to look bad and they wait, 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 then they realize, well, now I look bad because I got dropped and I was in the back. I'm not going to do that again. So that's a tactical scenario, but the underlying behavior will generally correct it. What I, I think my the most simplistic thing is either one of those, in my experience, gets you the same gold medal. Yeah. It will get you a gold medal. Okay. I love that perspective. And the, the, the one thing that if I could ever give a lesson, I mean, there's a road here in Colorado Springs where I live where I've trained, I don't know, three or four world champions an Olympic medalist, and I call it the trail of tears because I've seen the the worst case scenario of every individual. And so when you're with them all the time and you're going through all these struggles, you see the, the medal, yeah, you see that, but that's not the predominant view that they've had or the predominant uh, mentality they had. I always see the worst case scenario, and that seems to be more encompassing by the volume of time throughout a year. So I've seen way more failures, way more stress, way more insecurity, and way more tears than I actually saw wins. And I think there was one time in the past, Eric Zabel, one of the you know, professional bike racers who won, I think he was 25% successful. He raced 100 times and won 25, and he was the most successful in that year right. of winning races. That's a 25% success rate. So I've seen all the 75%, and it's... Uh, I don't know if I can do this. I'm afraid I'm going to fail. I don't know if I should quit. I've seen all the worst part of it. A lot of the, the mental self-talk of negative or positive, yeah, I've seen it manifest in both ways, but the underlying behavior of being negative, I've seen a lot of people have success with it. It's kind of along the lines of uh, told many athletes that movies do us a disservice because when they only show 15 minutes of an athlete getting to the Olympics or getting to some major event, it's, it's very easy to only show the best of them and not to show all the struggles and the bad moments. Correct. It's interesting. There's a, you ever, I think it's the 2000 Olympic triathlon results. They have interviews with the girls afterwards, the women's triathlon 2000 in London of the top three. And that was one of the most honest, interviews of all three ladies that I've ever seen where they basically they got the medal and then they kind of told the truth <laughs> of I didn't know if I was going to be here everything was terrible and on and on and on and then they got the end result that they were looking for but the honesty of the interviews and that's the one that I kind of show when I'm doing developmental camps is that your expectations is you're going to get this medal and it's going to do all this for your life or whatever you think the winning is going to do for your life but here's all the things you have to go through to get it. And maybe sometimes it isn't worth it. I watched a, a friend. She, was, she got an Olympic spot, but she had other women sabotaging her bike. She had 
uh, one woman take her to court for the month before the Olympics to try to take her spot from her. And she was exhausted by the time she got there. And, and whenever I hear athletes say it's, it's amazing just to be here and people say, oh, that's, that's a loser mentality. I'm like, you don't get what they, go, they went through to get there. They, they have the right to say that. Yeah, that's pretty normal. The way it's working these days, and that's why that resiliency, being able to deal with all that stress, and yeah, it's difficult. And it's not just the stress of trying to win at the end of the actual race. <laughs> Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Bucky about ego and task-oriented athletes. So this is a kind of fun, just a little tangent here. But back in the you know, my early days of racing, before the the Garmin era, when you didn't have uh, too much information on a, on a computer display, everybody would show up to races with something taped to their handlebars, and some would show up with details about the course. You know, you're, there's going to be a climb at this mile. There's feed zone at this mile you know, all the information they need to know to, to execute the, the course correctly. Other people would just show up with other riders' numbers because that's all they cared about was who they were racing. So right. even there, you see that some people being more task-oriented and some people being much more ego-oriented. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yep. Fun tangent. Either one of them is distracting, which is good. But it, 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 And I guess that just goes to show that you use these tools that we're talking about, but you have to personalize them based on your athlete. If your athlete is very ego-oriented, Giving them all the task-oriented instruction isn't going to matter because all they care about is beating that guy. So use, use their, their dominant feature to your advantage and, and, and help them program that way. So this is kind of a, a fun coincidence. Um, when I was reading that study last night and, and getting ready for this uh, podcast, it happened that Chris and I did an interview with a pro writer named Sepp Koos. We were talking to him about how he, he's gone through the different levels. And this is a, a guy who's, he's what, 24 now? Mm-hmm. So three years ago in 2015, he was doing his first crit in a collegiate race, having no idea how to, how to race. Within a year and a half, he was winning the top races in North America, and now he's racing Pro Tour uh, over in Europe. So obviously been quite wow. successful and very rapidly. Yes. And when we talked to him about how he's, he's gotten through these levels and handled it, he made comments like, I don't get why people are so focused on results. And he said, you know, it's, it's kind of easy for me because I have a role. I have a job to do and I just do my job. And we say, do, you know, does it ever get to you mentally? And he goes, only my training because I have goals in my training. And if I don't accomplish those goals, that bugs me. So it seems like yesterday we were talking to somebody who's been very successful and he seems to be the extreme of this task orientation. Absolutely. And unfortunately... <laughs> Uh, if you think about it, the, that's the purest kind of kind of athlete that you you do it to improve yourself. I think that's what sports are about. But I think, unfortunately, and here's my my little my, my little like a soapbox, sports take that away a little bit because often we don't care whether you PR'd. We care whether you won. Mm -hmm. Even yes. when we ask, you know, we ask somebody, you know, how'd you do today? Their answer isn't oh, I PR'd. It's I won or I got third. So we make everything in sport about ego, even though you're the athlete you just mentioned, the, the, the cyclist you mentioned, that, that, that to me is my dream athlete because that person is going to be easy to motivate. All you have to do is set that person up for with, these are your, your, your task goals. These are the kind of things you need to focus on for yourself. And honestly, that, that's all you can really do. You can only ride your best for you. And then if the results happen, they happen. So I love his approach. I wish I wish a lot of people had that approach. 
Check out episode 53, which was two episodes ago, if you really want to get a sense of how SEP thinks and trains. But here's a conversation with the Lotto NL Yumbo rider, and this year's winner of the Tour of Utah, about the good and bad side of a winning-oriented mindset. Yeah, certainly. I think it can go both ways. You can even go into a race where you say, oh, I'm the best guy here, I'm going to win this race. Then you get overexcited and end up losing it because you're so set on winning the race and whether you that's do something a, stupid. attacking too early or, yeah. or discounting somebody that's up the road or something like that. So I think, yeah, even, even from, if, even if your dominant mindset is a, is a winning mindset, you have to think, okay, let's stay cool. Let's, let's act like I don't care that much. You know, <laughs> let some other people think that maybe it's not, today's not my day. Um, just mental mental games that you play with yourself and other people where you're not just fully focused on following every attack because you want to win so bad, just waiting for your, your moment because if you're confident, that should be your, your, dominant, uh, your dominant thought rather than just winning. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you take time during races to monitor what you're thinking and, and sometimes correct it or...? In a race, it's hard to say. In the heat of the moment, no. Fair enough. <laughs> because yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of yeah all those things. But uh, yeah, I think when you when you think back on on a race and what your mindset was in it, then you can try something different next time. Let's get back to Doctor Bucky, who has another good point about thought control, not letting others get into your head. I was a baseball catcher, Trevor. You know this. For yep. I was a baseball catcher all the way through my my, my high school and college career, and I, part of what I do as a baseball catcher that, that makes me a little bit, I guess, more effective for my team is you try and get inside the batter's heads a little bit. So a little bit of trash talking, a little bit of, we'll call it sportsmanlike, or we'll call it, uh, I don't know what word you are. Trash talking is probably the best word for it. <laughs> yeah, let's be honest. Yep. <laughs> my, my, my job is to, to get inside their head and to clog up their funnel. Because if I can distract them even for, even for a minute, even for a, you know a millisecond and a baseball pitch, that's gonna that's gonna be long enough to, to have them not hit the ball solidly or, or even miss it. So I, we've got to be able to control what's in our funnel. Mind games and, would be another. Yeah, point. well, mind games is a is a great way to put it. So gamesmanship is the is a polite way to talk about it, but trash talking is really what it is in the end. I vaguely remember you telling a story about getting on a bus after a, a meet or something. You were had just been starting out and basically. You, you hadn't been the best c- catcher uh, in terms of ability at the time, but you were a great... Oh, that's, it's, that's still the case. So, yeah, I, I, I was never the best catcher, but... But, but you were a great smack talker, and so apparently your your coach yep. was like, no, great job. Yep, yep, yep. So, whatever's best for the team. So. <laughs> I have to remember this as I'm getting slower and slower. I'm just going to have to get better about my, my smack talk oh, in the boy, race. This exactly. Gonna, this isn't going to go research, very get well. In head send them out. I can pull the hole when, when I'm in a race, you know, sitting on the wheel of some kid, and be like, "I'm 50." Yeah, that. You <laughs> and I'm holding use, with you. What's, you what's your problem? You can use the age card for sure. Like, what is wrong with you? I'm. I could be your dad, and I'm beating you. <laughs> this episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Normatech. The more you train, the better your recovery needs to be. Normatech's patented compression technology delivers the most advanced recovery for your body. You've seen pros like Tom Skunch, 
Taylor Finney, and the BMC racing team using the Normatec boots and recovery station set up for riders at races like the Colorado Classic. Normatec's recovery massage increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. Save $100 with code FASTTALK18. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K-1-8 at normatechrecovery.com. There's a couple other studies that I, I will post on the website. I want to go too deep into them because, uh, you know, I think Dr. Bucky's knowledge is going to be far beyond my quoting a few studies. But one thing I did find interesting, one, if you're, for our listeners who are really interested, there was a thought control study using Bradley Wiggins' hour record attempt. And that, that was quite fascinating. But all these studies did have kind of that common theme of, when you are controlling your thoughts and keeping them more task-oriented, you tend to perform better. So there was also a, a one that was uh, with tennis players where they use trigger words to help them perform the right action and, and stay focused. And they said when the trigger words were focused on the task, they did well. Or uh, however, when the, the trigger words were focused more internally on themselves, it didn't help them as much. If, if you think about it, though, what you just mentioned was, was kind of interesting because you, you're mentioning tennis. And, and we're going to compare that to golf. Tennis is a sport where 100% of the time you have to be in the moment because you're constantly reacting to your environment. So you, you, your thoughts, your funnel is completely taken up by what is my opponent doing and what do I need to do next? So if you allow yourself to think about dinner or the fight you had with your significant other or you know how your feet feel, you're done because you the, the wrong stuff is in your funnel. Cycling is much more complex than that. And I certainly don't mean to downgrade tennis well, but cycling allows you sometimes to let your mind wander. When you're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no strategy going on and you're just riding along just trying to push a little bit, you don't need to be thinking about cycling. Your brain is allowed to wander, which is actually worse. Yeah. Because then you need to be able to put in there something that's not going to bring anxiety into the equation, something that's not going to make you worry or make you upset. You've got to control the randomness that your brain is allowing you to get through. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit different on a technical course or on a, on a, on a sprint, but no one can maintain focus. all the time. That's why tennis players, if they play a point, they stop, they take a break. Then they play another point and then they stop and then they play a couple more points and then they do a switchover. So there's, there's a constant mental relief because when you're playing, you have to be on point. Right. So again, cyclists, then I think that one of the big important things is make sure you control when you don't need to be on point. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the reasons if you watch a race like the Tour de France, sometimes the biggest crashes are when nothing's going on in the race and they're on a flat, boring road. It's because mm -hmm. your mind starts to wander and all of a sudden you run into the guy next to you and you're on the pavement. Yeah, you relax a yeah, little I mean, bit and touch yep. wheels and there you go. Cascade effect of 30 guys going down. Yep. And it's because all those guys were just in that let your mind wander a little bit idea. So let's switch over to the, the tactics that people can employ, the skills necessary to control their thoughts in the most positive way during, during races. Dr. Bucky, what are your thoughts? They're, they're kind of all over the place, and I'm, I'm enjoying what my mind is doing as we're, you know, <laughs> as, we're, as we're switching topics and figuring out where we're going and what we're going to bring up next. So I, I think you can look at this a couple different ways. And Trevor, you and I were talking about this before the podcast started, that it, it, 
kind of depends on whether you know the course well or not. Mm. If it's if it's say a crit, it's just the same thing over and over again. If it's a road race that you you know the course, you can kind of plan on when you're going to have those 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 mental breaks that to to allow yourself your mind to wander a little bit. And if you're able to do that, then part of your pre-race planning would probably should probably have something to do with well when I'm do when I'm here this is what I'm going to allow myself to think about. I know when I'm out on a longer ride, I, I, I like to, I don't wear headphones, obviously, but I like to think about songs. And I know if I'm going down, well, Trevor, you're familiar with Fort Collins. I know if I'm going over doing the Bingham Hill or the, you know, the, the, the damned loop, then there's this song coming up and I have this big hill to climb. And I know what songs I want in my head. And I let those songs come in my head because I don't want to be thinking about the fact that I'm writing right now because it sucks. I want to distract myself with something that, that I enjoy better. So I listen to songs getting ready for my ride that I know I'm going to sing and, 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 and have in my head while I'm riding. So we can pre-plan some of those, those distracting thoughts that we're going to let ourselves have. On the other side of the equation is if you're riding a route that you don't know, then you kind of have to stay in the moment a little bit more because maybe you have this, this tight turn coming up that you're not ready for, but you, you, you're not, you can't allow yourself to escape. That's a much more dangerous situation because sometimes you escape anyway, or if, or if you're riding in a group and somebody else falls off, like, like you were talking about earlier, Chris, somebody in the, in, in the Peloton goes down, 40 people go down because they were all sort of letting their mind wander a little bit. In that kind of situation, you kind of have to toe the line between focusing on what's going on and giving your mind that break that it really needs. Yeah, so actually going with Fort Collins studies or stories, my very first ride in Fort Collins, I went over Risk Canyon. And, and you talk about needing to focus when you, you don't know the route. Uh, mm -hmm. So I went over Risk. And as you know, it's a real steep drop over the mountains on yeah. the other side. Yeah, so yeah. I, 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 wrote it, I wrote it on Saturday. It was a great ride. Fantastic. Well, I rode it in an afternoon. Uh, okay. got to the other side, realized I don't know where I'm at. So I used my Garmin to direct me back and went, oh, it's about two hours to get home from here. Then I looked at my Garmin at what time the sun set. Oh, it sets in 40 minutes. <laughs> I had a very nerve wracking yep. ride home from my first ride at Fort Collins. So there, there is, when you don't know the route, it's important to make sure, uh, you're, you're paying a little attention. Especially on something on, on Risk Canyon, that, that's a good example because either way you go, the first half is, is an extreme uphill. And it's, it's easy. To, I mean, you're not going very fast. That's kind of easy to let yourself lose a little bit. But on the way down, I mean, that's a, that's a, a very rapid descent and you better be on your game or I, I can't tell you how many people I know have washed out on that and, you know, mm -hmm. done the gravel and gone underneath and uh, had some devastating. I know at least three people have been airlifted from that canyon because, because they were, well, I mean, part of it's unavoidable, but a lot of times because they were letting themselves go and they shouldn't let themselves go. The only time I've ever, and this is getting really more, but the only time I've ever seen somebody die was a motorcyclist coming down wrist. Mm. Exactly the same issue. I mean, obviously with a little bit more power, but it, it, if, you, if you let yourself go when you can't. So, so like this, it gets back to the idea that you have to know when you're going to let yourself relax mentally. And then when you do that, you then have to control what what you allow to come in. This might be a silly question, but what what purpose does relaxing the mind serve? Is there a breaking point where we can, we can only focus for so much time before our mental capacities start to fade? So the, the, I, I realize it might sound silly, but I'm, I'm looking for a more, maybe a more complex answer from, from somebody who knows the science well. 
there's there's not a there's not a huge complex answer. We 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 hear it a lot, and this it's total garbage. But the idea that the brain is just like any other muscle, and certainly the brain isn't a muscle, but the, but the analogy works that you can't overwork any part of your body without giving it adequate time to rest. I mean, most most people who are listening to this were were students once. I would have a feeling, and just like you realize that after you're cramming for a test for an hour you're not nearly as effective as you were when you started. So it's much better. And we know that the, the idea is called mass versus distributed practice. We know that practice is better when you, you work hard for 20, 30 minutes, and then you give yourself a 10-minute break. And then you work hard for 20, 30 minutes, and give yourself a 10-minute break. That's a much more effective training mechanism, both physically and mentally, than working straight through. The repetition and of it. That, 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 exactly, because we, we just need time to recharge. That's why sleep is so beneficial. We're in finals week right now here at CSU, and I know a whole bunch of students. Oh, I didn't sleep at all last night. That's just dumb because <laughs> your your brain didn't get time to to reset itself. And you're, I would actually recommend sleeping rather than studying sometimes because your brain's going to feel refreshed. And if if you learned it once, it's going to come back much easier then than if you just read it through four or five times overnight. So allow yourself to recharge. And in a in like a tennis match, like we were talking about, when you constantly have to be on 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 point. That's why they have so many tiny little breaks. We'll call them micro breaks in between points. In a race, if you had to be completely strategic and you know watching everything that's going on for four or five hours, no one would be good at that because you'd have to be both on point physically and mentally. And I don't know anybody that's got that skill set. So you've got to be able to plan and allow for yourself to take the, the mental breaks just like the physical breaks. Do you ever suggest to people in this, maybe this is a silly question too, that they practice uh, a mantra or something, some very specific thought to get them through? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that when I was reading, preparing for this, we talked a little bit about in, in golf, right, right now most of my work is with golfers. In, in golf, we do a pre-shot routine, which basically when you when when you address the ball you have one swing thought and that keeps your your brain exactly where it is you know you're not thinking about the trees or the woods or slicing or anything like that you're keeping mm-hmm. uh, mine is my elbow my elbow tends to fly when i when i play golf so like yeah my 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 mantra is elbow in and f- follow through so that that is my my one thought my mantra during golf and it it, it keeps my swing much more consistent if i'm if i'm working on cycling my mantra is usually a song or a lyric from a song, but something that allows me to keep my cadence when, when I want to ride, whatever pace I want to ride, whatever cadence I want to ride. But a, a mantra could be push, a mantra could be points, it could be top, a, a, a word that you allow to go through your head. But basically what you're doing is distracting, again, you're clogging your funnel. You're not allowing the, boy, my legs hurt, this is a grind, I'm, am I going to make it? You're not allowing those things into your head. You're just focusing on this one thing that puts you in the right place. And sometimes, again, that can be motivating. Sometimes it can just be distracting, but you're, you're keeping the junk out of your funnel. Now, that's interesting because uh, when I was more focused on time trialing, I used to actually keep tape to uh, the, the stem of my handlebars forward. First was heart rate, then cadence then breathing, and then hips. And these were, this was my checklist. And I would just spend the entire time trial going through this checklist, going, is my heart rate where I want it to be? Is my cadence where I want it to be? Am I breathing right? Am I breathing deeply or am I, I soft, shallow breathing? Um, and are my hips rotated correctly? Trevor, did you have, um, obviously you have a cycle computer on there. How much of that information was given back to you? 
I, as I got better at time traveling, I actually started using less and less data. I, I got my computer down to a screen that was just heart rate and cadence. Good, which, which I love because if it's right in front of you, it's, it's easier information to get. So it doesn't, it doesn't clog up your, your funnel very much. But if you have to go through and I mean, like you said, your cadence, you, if you actually have to think about it, again, that takes up space in your bucket. I like that. I think the technology in this aspect, the more stuff you have on your computer, whether you have your cadence or your speed or your heart rate, all I think that actually hurts us in this case because it, it I, I guess it's, it's more of a distraction sometimes. But it doesn't distract us enough from the ta- from the pain. If you're if right. you're if you're right. actually exactly. having so, well, well said, Chris. If you're actually having to go through the process of saying, okay, my cadence is good, I'm spinning really well. Okay, my hips are rotated. You know, if you just have a number that immediately tells you you're good or you're bad, mm-hmm. it's too quick. If there's a process it is, it involved, is. I think that that and, serves to distract you in a better way. And I like Trevor's idea of his tape. Um, especially if you have something like hips on there, because no no readout is going to tell you how your hips are doing. You've got to actually go through and do a quick self-check, which again takes time. I equate that exactly to what I was talking about with the golf thing, that it keeps my focus on my elbow, so my elbow doesn't fly during my swing. Nobody can measure that. I can't see that. I just, I just, you just kind of feel it and think about it, which, which keeps your mind involved. And golf, obviously, your swing takes less than a second, so you really only have to stay focused for a second. Cycling, you're talking much, much more time. So cycling is a little bit more, I guess, mentally exhausting than golf can be. And I think this this uh, this checklist nature of distracting yourself is is really great. And Trevor mentioned how he did it in the time trials. Uh, now that he's he's um, involved in coaching me for an event that's coming up for me, he'll give me uh, interval sessions, and I will do something similar where I'll write down the specifics of that interval session, and that is essentially that checklist that is in front of me, and I can go through that, and that can be used to distract myself from the pain that I'm feeling throughout the interval session and focus just on simpler things, whether it's cadence, heart rate, power, etc., and you'll see that in, in professional racing a lot. It's slightly different, but guys will often put on their top tubes, whether it's a profile or the lengths of climbs and gradients and things like that. So they have this, not only, it's a, it's a little like an instruction manual for the day, but it also serves as a checklist of things. Okay, I'm done with that. Forget it. Okay, I'm done with that. Check. Forget it. And they can move through that. And especially if you're task oriented, I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, you, 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 you hit on the nail twice on that one. I think, first of all, because you, you've got this checklist, you're allowing your brain to, to go through the system so it doesn't become you know, overwhelmed by one thing. But you're also checking off successes, which is going to give you a lot more motivation. Hey, I'm doing something. That, that, that was something. I want. So you're, you're rewarding yourself. You're experiencing success, which is going to put you in a positive mood, which is going to bring you know, more, more positive thoughts in there and, and not let the negatives and the pain overwhelm. So I, I like that idea on two different aspects. That again, it's, it's a positive thing, and it keeps your brain busy in a good way. Now, there's another element to this in cycling that there are points in the race where it is really yeah. going to hurt, and your body is going to be doing everything possible to tell you to stop. And it seems like at those moments, thought control is really important too. As we talked, we touched on briefly before the, these withdrawal thoughts, telling you to stop, pull out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does thought control come into those situations? Well, what you're talking about there is almost a, a, a micro burnout idea. 
And when we talk about burnout, I mean, most of us have experienced burnout in, in exercise or in sport or even in our careers where, where honestly, we just stop caring. We're, we're, we're emotionally and we're physically exhausted and we're not getting the rewards we were looking for. So we, we, we just stop. And, we, and not only do we stop, but we, we stop caring. So that, that's what we call a sort of a, a long-term burnout. But that can happen at a micro level, too, that in a race, if you're not getting the rewards you thought you were getting, if you're, you're getting tired, you're not allowing yourself to, to, I guess, recover, maybe you didn't get enough sleep last night, then it's easier for you to become burned out. And you, the, the, the only way to cure a burnout is to take a break. If you're burned out at work, you need a summer vacation. If you're burned out at school, again, summer vacation. If you're burned out as a cyclist, you take a little bit of time away and, and you, re, you redevelop the love. You miss it. And, and then you want to come back. But when you're burned out, you don't miss it. You just want to be done. So how do we avoid, again, how do we avoid burnout? We give ourselves adequate rest, both mentally and physically. We make sure that we're achieving rewards. And if we're, again, getting back to the task ego thing, if we're ego-oriented, we've got to make sure we're getting some competition awards. If we're task-oriented, we've got to make sure that we're meeting some of our personal goals. But the, the rewards and rest, in my opinion, are the solution to preventing and then recovering from burnout. But let's take a, a specific situation. So you're in a race. You've just hit a 15-minute climb that's going to decide the whole race. So in this scenario, you are strong enough to be one of the people to get over the top of that climb in the lead. But it is going to hurt. How do you push yourself through that when your body you is screaming to, at you to again, stop? If you answer that with the reward versus rest thing, you realize that it's going to take me 15 minutes to, of, of just absolute work to get this done. But I'm going to reward myself, first of all, by the fact that I'm going to get it done. I'm going to, I'm going to get points. And then once I get over there, then I can rest a little bit. I can, I can allow myself to fall back a little bit, maybe get pulled along for a little while instead of leading. And if I get these points, that is my goal. Then I'll rest and then maybe I'll get up for the next one. But for now, I'm going to make this my, my complete focus and give this everything I have, reward myself later. So that, that study about Bradley Wiggins and the, um, his hour record, they talked about mm -hmm. distraction and said it actually needs to be the right type of distraction. Basically, if you're, you're in this hard time trial and you're looking around going, oh, look at the pretty trees, you're not focusing on your pacing and you're going to slow down. So you actually won't perform well. So what they talked about in the study is exactly what we're talking about right now, which is using task-oriented distraction. Focus yep. on, on the task at hand. It, it keeps you away from the pain. You know, and they, they said in the study, if you sit there and focus on the pain, it just gets, it hurts more. So it's, it's focusing on accomplishing the task. But with that said, your focus has to have some variety in it. You can't simply focus on your hips for an hour. Plan your distractions. So, and, and if you want to use technology, you can. If you want to use, you know, some, some team, I, I assume Wiggins had a headset in and he was, he was being talked to the whole time by somebody. No, it's actually not that allowed hurt. when you do the hour record. You're, they, you're oh, limited not. in the amount of data you're allowed to have. Then I, I think what I would do in that kind of situation is I would, I would use whatever I was allowed to use to plan at, at 20 minutes, get a drink at 30 minutes, um, check your feet. But give yourself something to let your mind go through that's not the same thing over and over. It can certainly all be cycling-oriented, and it can certainly all be you know, focused on the task, but it has to be different things. Because even if your brain isn't resting, it's getting some variety. 
and so variety is what is what's going to help you refresh your brain. That's really interesting because that's exactly what he did. He broke the race into tw- uh, 12-minute segments. And Perfect. the focuses were very different. So early on, when it wasn't hurting as much, they said he was much more situationally, or they called it reactive cognitive control focused. So he was actually being more aware of how am I feeling? How much is this hurting? Yep. How are my legs doing? Focusing on those sorts of things, less on distraction because it wasn't hurting that much anymore. Right. Um, in the later parts, when he was really starting to hurt, it was much more using cognitive techniques to distract. So one of the things he really did, he had a way of timing his cadence for the curves and the straightaways and really, really focused on his cadence because that allowed him to keep his pace up but keep his brain away from the pain. Wow, this yeah. is hurting now. So if you, if you think about it, get, get, get back to that funnel idea. The first 12 minutes, pain wasn't really a worry so he knew pain wasn't going to be what was taking over that funnel. So he allowed his funnel to be whatever. So you use the word reactive cognitive. He was allowed to be reactive because he wasn't afraid of what was going to be clogging that funnel. Later on, he knew that the pain would be the big part of that or the discomfort or the whatever word you want to use there. So he planned how he was going to keep the pain out of that funnel. Right. Exactly. And I think that's, I think that's a fantastic idea. Colby Pierce, a top coach here in Colorado, also has a lot of experience with thought control and the hour record. He's getting to be a regular on our podcast, and we never know where the conversation is going to go, but it's always fun. We talked with him about positive versus negative dominant thoughts, controlling the funnel when you're hurting, and cows. I always do this thing with my athletes where I get them to close their eyes and then try not to picture a pink elephant. Right, right, right. The thing being, of course, you're going to picture a pink elephant, whatever. right is dominating your thought. That's where you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And this is th- going to be good. You've got some good thoughts on this one, don't you? <laughs> yeah. So, the, I mean, go where you want to go with this, but basically what are, what are techniques that you use or your athletes use to control thought? Right. To make sure they're thinking the right way. Right. Yeah. Big topic. Um, like any problem, the first step is recognizing that you have a problem. I mean, you have to educate your athlete about the fact that they probably have these dark clouds floating through their heads all the time. Most humans do. doesn't make you a bad person. They're just clouds. So the first step is to just look at the clouds and say, okay, they're there. These dark clouds, are they can be negative thoughts in any number of forms. It can be, did I prepare enough? Or, or it can just be something. It doesn't have to be even personal. It can just be a negative thought like, oh, I don't like the way that guy's shirt fits. Or Those are just negative thoughts. And, and when you consume yourself with negative thoughts, when you fill your brain with negative thoughts and allow them to just sit there, your energy levels just will slowly go down, right? We don't want that. We want strong, positive, radiant energy. That's what all athletes want. That's what all humans want. That's what. That's the basis of health. So you want to f- take out those negative thoughts, whether they're about yourself or someone else, and replace them with positive thoughts, happy thoughts. Pretty simple, right? I mean, this is hippy-dippy stuff, but it's true. There's a lot of science behind this. And I'd be happy to dig some up if, if we want but I don't have any at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I just know it's there. Oh, it is there. Absolutely. Um, and, and so what does this relate to? The, one of the conversations I like to have with my athletes is, is about something called the primal fear, right? And it's the fear that all humans really share on some level. And it can take different forms. When you kind of distill it and boil it down, it's the same basic fear, which is I am not enough. I am not fast enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not short enough, skinny enough, muscly enough, whatever. 
And all humans sort of share this fear. And when we're at our worst, we embrace that fear and we magnify that fear. We feed that fear, right? It's like that old uh, story about the two wolves that are fighting, right? One wolf represents all the negative emotions, fear and anger and jealousy and and rage and, and um, embarrassment and all those things. And then the other wolf represents love and harmony and purity and good intent. And the two wolves are fighting, right? And this story is like a grandson, you know, the grandpa's telling the grandson about these wolves and the, the grandson's listening to the two wolves and fighting. He says, grandpa, which wolf will win? And the grandpa, of course, says, whichever one you feed. So you have to feed your good wolf, right? You have to feed these positive thoughts constantly. It's a, it's a make it, fake it till you make it kind of scenario, but that's the, literally the way that people who embrace this mindset operate. And it actually changes their, their mind on a physical level. There is science to support this as well. So first you have to tell your athlete, you kind of have to explain this paradigm to athletes because many people are unaware that this sort of, they just go about their day thinking their thoughts and they assume that everybody's grumpy and that's the way it works or that people have grumpy moments and happy moments. But you can control your thoughts and you should learn to control your thoughts. And then of course, the other aspect, the other part of that is to baseline it and clear out the trash. And that involves meditation. That's mm -hmm. the simplest way. And once you develop a practice of meditation that's somewhat regular, then you can kind of dip into that well, that moment of inner peace or inner quiet whenever you need to. And that becomes a powerful tool because we all get off center once in a while. We all have life events that happen where we walk around a corner and something really unexpected and negative happens, whatever that is, is running into an ex-girlfriend or a boyfriend or seeing a car accident or seeing something much more tragic, right? These things happen or learning, hearing some really bad news and how do you react to that news? And the stronger your well of that positive energy is and that stability, that peace, that calm is inside you, the more stable you are and the less likely it is to knock you off balance. Let's take a, a real specific example yeah. Um, for our listeners. So the common one. Flat tire in a bike race? Well, that just sucks. <laughs> but, um, you're in the bike race yeah. and the thought that's going, you might be aware of it or not, but the thought that's going through your head is, I'm going to get dropped, I'm going to get dropped, right. I'm going to get dropped. And right. my experience yep. is as soon as that thought is going through your head, you guess what's going to happen? Yes. So yes. how do you A, recognize it right. and B, change right. that dialogue? So an even simpler analogous thought is, is people say this, especially when you're learning how to mountain bike, it's like you come down the trail and there's a giant rock in the middle of the trail. And if you look at that rock, you're going to ride right into that rock. Rock right? magnet. Rock magnet. Same exact concept. Um, it goes back to fake it till you make it to a degree. And some of that may seem inauthentic to some riders, but there is science to back up that if you just relentlessly rehearse positive things in your head, eventually your perspective will change. And that can be as simple as, I think I can stay on this wheel. I think I can. I think I can. It can be as simple as uh, focusing on external goals that you know are controllable. Like it's only one and a half K to the summit. Yep. Right. And that comes down to a glass perspective, glass half full, glass half empty. I mean, we all know that a K and a half when you are at the limit can be eternity, right? Especially on a steep climb. I mean, that can be three, four, five minutes, depending on how steep it is. Mogion at the Gila is a perfect example. <laughs> Keeps going. Right? Just, just never ends. And they cruelly, they never move that one kilometer to go sign. It's like a five minute K or something. So uh, you just have to look at it and say, it's only one K to go. I can do anything for one kilometer, right? I can do right. anything. I was going to bring in the example of during your hour record, did you break it into uh, uh, yes. bite-sized pieces, so to speak? Right, right. Yeah. So the journey of a thousand miles begins one, with one single step, right? 
I did. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had Jonathan there uh, and his girlfriend at the time, Carrie, they were there helping me and holding up lap cards and telling me my splits. And they knew, so I knew my exact differential to John Fry's pace. He was the previous hour record holder. And I have to say that hour record was mentally, I was always one step ahead because I was ahead of Fry from a very early phase. And once you see that gap, even if it's only three seconds and, and of course I have to be in a place that's sustainable, but I was. So those two variables together, that's all that mattered. Right. And so in that part, I, I broke it down, uh, to a degree, but really it was relentless fixation on that gap for me in that instance. But there are other times when you have to, you have to break it down and say, okay, great example is, uh, one year at the Breck Epic in the final stage, I sort of did a play attack on the last stage coming back towards town over Boreas pass. And when you get to the far point of that course, you're quite a ways down Boreas. I think it's probably a 30 minute climb back up that pass. And it's just a, like a 4% Colorado dirt road. And there is nothing glorious about that at all. It's just hard work. And I did a little jump on a roller and the guys didn't react. And I went, well, okay, this is it. And I threw down and went into time trial mode. And in that moment, man, was I groveling, uh, just breathing out of every cell in my body to try to make it over that pass with as much time as possible. Because I knew that Travis Brown and Jeremiah Bishop were chasing me on the descent to the line. So I needed every second of to spare, right? Because these guys are clearly better bike handlers than I am. So I needed to maximize my ability to climb that pass as fast as possible, give myself the biggest buffer. And I did a thing where I broke it down into, I said from, and so the climb kind of, kind of weaves, kind of contours along the mountain. So you kind of have these points where you can see the road for maybe 30, 40 seconds, maybe a minute, and then it dips away. You can't see it. And then you can see it again. And I would say to that corner right there, I'm just going to go as hard as I freaking can. And I would just stare at that tree and it was power meter tree, power meter tree, power meter tree. That was it. Just, that was the deal. It's like a internal handshake. And I got to that corner and I went, and then I could see the next stretch of road. And I said, okay, now to there, to that corner, I'm mm-hmm. going to go as hard as I freaking can. And I clawed my way up that mountain that way. I just broke it down into maybe six chunks of corners, mm-hmm. hung on for dear life. It was not pretty. You know, there are moments when you can open the throttle wide and you, whatever, whatever reason you have grace that day was not one of those days, but I did manage to win the stage. Barely almost took myself out on the descent, barely managed to hang on for dear life. So, you know, that I tell my athletes this and a bunch of time trialers might tell me I'm full of it. But when you hear about time trialers breaking a, a time trial into segments, yep, everybody's like, well, they're trying to do some sort of reverse, whatever. White magic. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, every, you know, they've got a plan for each one. I'm like, no, they're just trying to make it manageable. Yeah. Because if you're doing a 40K time trial and you're one minute in, you're already hurting and going, cool, I've got another 50 whatever minutes (laughs) of this. Depending on the course and how fast you are. Yeah, yeah, right. That's going to take you mentally bad places. If you said, just think, let's just deal with the first 10 minutes. Settle, rhythm. manageable. Rhythm, yep. And, you know, the classic paradigm in the US is 40K has got a 20K turnaround. So you're working towards a turnaround. Deal with the second half later. That's a bridge we'll get to at some point. Right now, I'm just going to get that turnaround as fast as I can. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. There are rides where I have been completely consumed with the pain and the best way for me to, f- to feel like I could deal with it was to look directly at it. Yes. And there are other days where it's sort of like this thing in the background. And I, I swear there are time trials where I've been doing like complex math, not on purpose. It just happens, which is bizarre but I'll start to see equations and things. I don't know what's going on there. I have no explanation for that. <laughs> as long as it's getting you somewhere. As long as it's getting me somewhere. I, I remember it being a good time trial. I don't yeah. recall which one exactly it was or how I placed, but yeah. 
My trick is I just simply, I, I turn pain into a metric. It's like looking at power. It's like looking at heart rate. I just constantly go, okay, what's the level of the pain right now? I'm at a 9.7 out of 10. Or, yep. Yeah. But almost you do that unemotionally. Mm -hmm. It's just another metric. Yes. And when you start telling yourself pain is just another metric, mm -hmm. somehow it becomes more manageable. Yeah. I One trick that I've given myself over the years, or not really trick, but perspective, I would say, and I've I've shared this with some of my athletes, has been to view pain as simply another distraction. Mm -hmm. The goal is to go as fast as you can. That's the focus, speed. Pain, as well as cows, cars, wind, cold, heat, thirst, discomfort, all those things are just distractions from the thing I'm trying to do, which is go to the finish line as fast as possible. And that was brought home by, I saw an interview with Taylor Finney a couple of years ago where he talked about the fact that he doesn't use power on his TT bike anymore. He just looks at speed, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Haven't Swain, tried that myself yet, but. Swain said it was just cadence. Just cadence, yeah. yeah. But, and, and I'm glad you brought up cows because that has become a major issue. And one of these days we're going to address that in this podcast. Yeah. Cows and deer in the front range. Distractions. Distractions. Deer are an issue. Deer when you're descending. Are yes. <laughs> cows. Distracting cows. Yes. Damn those cows. <laughs> Now that you've heard Colby's tips, let's finish up with a few tips of our own. So, uh, Dr. Bucky, maybe you could just give us a few tips on how to control those those thoughts. I, I think the pre-planning as much as you can. Uh, and I think the idea of, I, I think you use some good terms, the, the reactive cognition versus the proactive cognition. I think the reactive comes pretty naturally, but the proactive is the one we have to we have to prepare for. Could you go into a little bit more detail about that? I think that the best way to think about it is uh, as you get better as a rider, you, you learn yourself and, and you know, as, as you think through the, the last race you did or the, the last time you were on this course, you remember when you struggled, at least mentally or, or physically, either one. And I think we, we prepare for the, oh, this one's got a lot of hills, so I have to be, you know, I have to be on my hill game or this one's got, you know, some pretty good descents or I remember this one, I let my mind go in the middle and that's where, that's where I lost some, some, some times or whatever. But as we know the, the course better, we can plan for the times when we know we're going to have some mental issues. So, again, Trevor, I like your idea of bar tape on this one. Put yourself down on the bar tape that when, when you hit this spot, whether it's this barn that you're driving by or this lap that you're going through where you get past the speed zone and you realize you're going to be, you know, you're, you're going to have 20 minutes of nothing. Give yourself a keyword. Well, this is the time I want you to think about that song or this is the time I want you to think about you know, the next race or which is usually a bad idea, but again, we're just looking to distract ourselves with positive stuff. So pre-plan again, your distractions, if you can. We haven't talked about visualization. I don't know if we want to, uh, if that gets us into a completely different realm or. I mean, it, it's a, it's a tool. It's a, it's a practice that we can use for just about anything. I think in terms of what we've been talking about, we could use visualization as a distraction. Um, it's almost an escape kind of an idea. If you allow yourself to clog your funnel with, remember that time I was on that beach or remember that time even better. Remember that time that I got that podium and that that felt out there. So we, we can use the, the visualization to take ourselves into a, really wherever we want to take ourselves. That in, in itself, we could go on for, for an entire podcast or three about about the benefits of visualization, how we use it. But I think in terms of this one, we're just going to allow ourselves to to go wherever we need to go. If you're super stressed, visualize somewhere a little bit more relaxed. 
The problem with that, though, is that I like to use the term in my class that our brain is actually pretty stupid. And what I mean by that is if we think about being relaxed, then that information travels down from our brain to our body and our body relaxes a little bit. And if we're if we if we have to keep up a certain cadence or we have to keep our muscles going at a certain rate, then that's going to slow us down. So, so maybe that's not what we want to do, but so maybe we want to visualize being on a roller coaster or we want to visualize, you know, something else that's exciting to, to keep ourselves, to give ourselves, it's still an escape, but it's not a, a physically debilitating escape. So I use visualization. It's, it's probably the, the tool I use most when I'm working with my athletes because it's, it's honestly, it's, it's the wonder tool and we can, we can use it to get just about anything done. Wow. Sounds like that's a, that's an episode to come. That's yeah, exactly. Shall we do our uh, one minute? Yeah. This is where we just sort of, you know, you can probably uh, think back to the whole conversation and, and pull out the, the best of your advice for, for listeners out there. And we'll give you one minute and you're on the clock. Dr. Bucky, what do you got? Oh, I, I have to go first. Jeez. Um, one of, the, one of the things I think really good athletes, especially really good cyclists, is the idea of our pre-shot routine. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. I think in our, our pre-shot routine, what that means is we have to understand that we're in control of our brain. And we can make it go where we want it to go. So the, we, we can use our pre-shot, it's a golf term, to, to put ourselves in the right mindset to, to, to make our brain ready for what's about to happen. We can do the same thing in cycling, except that the terminology doesn't make any sense anymore. So we'll just call it pre-programming. And as long as we know where we want to be, whether that's excited or relaxed or distracted or focused, we can take our brain there by using a couple of, of, of suggestions, whether we call that self-talk, whether we call that um, focus words. We can keep ourselves exactly where we want to be and, and keep our brain our brain in the game just like it needs to. Great. Trevor? I guess the, the take-home I want to give is that I found fascinating this whole idea of the, the ego orientation versus the, uh, the task orientation. And it's really important to know which one you are and also know the dangers of each, particularly with that ego orientation that can lead to, to self-conscious thoughts and that can lead to thoughts of wanting to pull out of the event. So figure out ways to first know your type and then how to take advantage of it as opposed to letting it become your weakness at the hard points in the race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what I was going to say. Figure out who you are, what type of, of person you are so that you can give yourself the sort of the rewards that work best for you. I completely concur that the brain our brains are pretty stupid and and can be can be pretty simple so you can take advantage of that fact if you're really task oriented get detailed about those tasks give yourselves a lot of rewards because you can just go through the list and check them off and and I think focusing on that process this is something that Sepp Kuss, who we mentioned earlier, he's extremely good at focusing on the process and not the end result. And the process is all about tasks. So if you're that type of person, uh, stick with that. And if you're not that type of person, you got to figure out uh, those rewards that work for you, but that also don't lead you down the wrong way of, of getting more uh, prone to dropping out of a race or, or, or um, giving up in, in a sense. So. 
And I think that to, to follow that up, I, I think it's important to understand. We, we often talk about sports psychology, and we, we say things like elite performance is ninety percent in your head. And well, I, I don't agree with that because I think I'm a I'm a better elite performer in my head than than Trevor is. But he's going to kick my ass on any on any big <laughs> coach because he's he's physically gifted. But I, I think that I think the take home from that is we spend a tremendous amount of time physically practicing. We don't spend nearly as much time mentally practicing and mentally preparing. And I think honestly, that's what sets the truly elite athletes out from just the gifted athletes who who don't really who don't really you know, perform up to their ability is. The fact that the, the elite, the, the, the really gifted ones, spend the time, do the mental practice. And, and I, I think that's preparation and that's knowing your tools and knowing, knowing what you need and when. That, that's, that's a great place to end it, so thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velanews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook and facebook.com slash velanews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velanews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Vela News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Brian Butke, Sepp Kuss, Colby Pierce, Dean Golich, and Chris Case, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.